It's good to be with you all and see you all. Hopefully you're recovering after a week of Olympics. Anybody stay up a little later than they intended at some point this week? I, uh, I know I was guilty of that. Found it funny, I was uh, talking to my wife and I, I, she had suggested this last Olympics and I still think it's a great idea, but I heard also Bill Murray say the same thing, that I think what the Olympics needs is it needs to introduce an average person competing for reference in the games. So like, imagine each one of the events, if you just have like somebody that like finds a star under their seat at the games, they're like, hey, you get to do the 50-yard swim, you know, like all these 50-meter thing. I think that would really make it more interesting and you'd appreciate what's happening there, especially in the high dive. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> hopefully you're uh, coming from a good week, excited this, this morning to dive back into this series. We're working through Revelation 2 and 3, and if you're haven't been here, basically these are letters written to specific churches, seven specific churches in that day and age with a kind of a, really each of them with some kind of a, at least a, a challenge, a, a few, some affirmation and a little bit of a blend of both. And really instead of me coming up with a series of what I think you need to hear about the church, I thought we'd better, we'd better be served by looking at the red words of Jesus Christ. So you can start turning there now and your Bible will be working through Revelation 2, 18 through 29 this morning, but just as we, before we dive in, I was thinking about our title and our topic for the series, and I realized we haven't talked a lot about that title, Letters to the Bride, and why that is. You see, throughout Scripture, the Bride of Christ is pointed to those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ. It's kind of a unique picture for any of you that are uh, suckers for weddings, not suckers, but really enjoy weddings. I know I'm one of those guys that has a hard time uh, especially during this season of life with young daughters, like keeping the tears from coming. I was at a wedding a couple weeks ago, and they, they did a, a, a special thing with a dance with the, the father and the daughter dance. Have you been to weddings with this, this deal? Well, this particular dad, he pre-recorded him singing Butterfly Kisses, you know the one, uh, to his, his, his daughter. And so I'm there, and at first I'm like, ah, that's kind of a cheesy song. But man, a few lines into it, I'm getting sucked in, like the tears are coming. I was like, this is powerful stuff. But, but here's the, the picture that Jesus gives of us saying, you're my bride. You're my bride. And my expectation for my bride is that my bride remains pure that my bride remains pure. This shouldn't be the, that crazy of an ask. I love how Paul paints the picture. You can see this passage in Corinthians. It says, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. His design, his plan for us is to be kept pure for him. And that's as he's writing these letters, he's writing these letters to move us towards this. Because infidelity, man, all of us have seen the havoc that can wreck on a relationship. The same is true for our relationship with Jesus Christ. I was reading some stats this week. The University of Chicago did a, a study recently that shows that 22% of husbands have had an affair. 15% of wives have had an affair. Almost one-fourth of men, it's crazy to think about. In the past 12 months, 13% of marriages involved a painful affair. See, the havoc that it breaks on a, a human marriage is the same havoc that it wreaks on a spiritual relationship with Jesus Christ. So that's what he's confronting here this morning, saying, listen, I've called you to be faithful, and you've wandered, church, in Thyatira, uh, 
I can't pronounce that right still, Thyatira, I think is the pro- proper way. And, uh, and here's the, the idea is saying, I, I've invited you to a life of purity and you're missing out if you don't partake. And God takes purity super serious. If you've spent some time in the book of Acts, if you got to Acts 5, you start reading the story of Ananias and Sapphira, and you're like, they lied about some money they gave, they're being uh, dishonest to the church, and all of a sudden, what, what happens? Anybody remember the story with them? Man, struck dead. You're like, whoa, what, in the, what, are, what are we dealing with here? Like, we have a jealous God that takes the fidelity of his bride really seriously. Let me pray before we dive into this text. God, thank you this morning for this opportunity to look at your words. Instead of us guessing what the target is for the church, you've painted that picture perfectly for us. I pray that you'd speak through these words to us, that we wouldn't have this all figured out, but we'd be teachable this morning, that you'd soften our hearts, that you'd speak directly to us. Meet us exactly in our point of need this morning. We ask, we invite your spirit to work now in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. So helpful for looking at this text together. The first verse is in verse 18 as he's writing to them. It says, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Pretty sobering introduction to start with. The first thing I've done in these, this series is given a little explanation about the town, a little bit about Thyatira. It's about a, uh, you can see on the map here, we've kind of mapped it out. You see the different churches that he writes to, specifically in uh, Turkey, which would have been uh, Asia at the time. So one, two, three, we've covered. Now we're to the fourth, and that's about 45 miles uh, south of Pergamum, which is the church we spoke about last week. And uh, in this specific city, it's a little bit of a smaller city. It's uh, uh, known unf- uh, different than the other, which, one, which was the capital, uh, th- thought of more about the things that it produced. So kind of a blue-collar town. It was known for producing textiles, uh, specifically known for uh, purple textiles, where it's where Lydia was from, if you remember her from the book of, of Acts. And uh, you see in the, the, uh, the town there, uh, being all about industry, one of the things they were known for was what they would call guilds. A guild was what we would know as present day, kind of the idea of a workers' union. So they had broken their town into all of these guilds or workers' unions based on what your expertise was. So if you're really good with copper, you'd be a part of the, the copper workers' guild, or you're working with textiles, the textile guild, and so on and so forth based on what your expertise was. If you weren't from church history really good at or, or, or a part of one of these guilds, it'd be a real hard time getting a, a job. And the challenge that Christians faced in that day and age was being part of one of those guilds. Each one of the guilds had a specific God that they worshipped. So each one of the guilds, it was interconnected. So they had a God that they would, they would worship and they would have what they call these feasts that they would invite everyone from their guild to be a part of. And these feasts were not just like a bad Christmas party. These feasts were like legit pagan God-worshipping, literally described as orgies in that time. And you're like, I mean, this was a, a, a real hindrance for someone that's trying to follow Christ and trying to earn a living. So the tension, you, as you can imagine, for someone employed was pretty heavy in that day and age. So that's who Jesus is specifically writing to, Christians trying to exist in that environment 
pretty tough environment. But you see out of the gates, the intro that he starts with, the first thing is that he says about himself, and each one of these, these letters starts with him saying, expressing something that's true about himself. You see some of the things he expresses here. It says, the words of the Son of God. Son of God. It's interesting that this is the only time in the entire book of Revelation that Jesus refers to himself as the Son of God. Other places, it's commonplace for him to refer to himself as the Son of Man. Son of Man is typically more associated when he's, he's trying to sympathize or be empathetic with man. Here he's saying, no, I've got, got the, the judge hat in. This is when I'm, I'm busting out the deity card. Like, this is serious business I, I'm about to address with you. So he starts with the introduction as Son of, son of God. And then it, look at that description, who has eyes like a flame of fire. I'm picturing these guys in a small little church. They've gathered to hear this letter. What does Jesus specifically have to say to us? And he starts right out of the gates in his, his intro. He's referring to, to what? His eyes are like a flame of fire. Like, whoa, this is about to get really intense. This is pretty serious. Since we already talked about the Olympics, I don't know if you, uh, when I was studying this week, I couldn't help but relate to this, this picture when you're picturing eyes. Do you guys remember this? This week, like uh, when the when the South African swimmer had kind of antagonized Phelps, I don't know a ton about swimming, but I do know if I'm going to pick a fight, it probably wouldn't be against Michael Phelps. You know what I mean? Like as far as swimming goes, and so so I mean he was serious business. Like uh, so anyway, that, that's the picture that came to mind when I'm thinking about this. When he's saying that, that this picture of eyes like a flame of fire suggests that he sees and discerns all and he's coming to address some things. Also mentions in that the bronze feet, the idea of bronze is pointing towards judgment. Burnish means that they're reflective. In other words, his judgment sees all, nothing sneaks past. 1 Corinthians 15.25 describing Christ says, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So this is a, a cautionary introduction, and I imagine everybody's doing a little bit of a gulp as they're starting to read this letter. Verse 19 starts really different than I would have, would have thought with that introduction. He says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. So following a little bit of a trend that we see in these different letters to the churches, he starts with a bit of a word of encouragement. So, so pointing out some things that he's seeing, you see that list is not such a bad one of his works, love, faith, service, and endurance. The, this, this list is not such a bad one. In fact, it's the only one of the churches thus far that's been encouraged for love, which you would think would be a framework of, of any church. So he's, he's pointing out these things and saying, nice job. And the part that caught my attention, maybe uh, you as well, it says, and that your latter works exceed the first. In other words, it's a progressing church that's moving forward. They're not the same person they were a week ago, a month ago, six months ago, and really isn't that what God's call is for the church. There's an expectation of us growing and progressing in Christ's likeness. My uh, wife made this kind of a cool chart that we have at our house. Maybe you have one of these on your wall. This is to, to map our, 
our kids' growth. Anybody else have this? Maybe written on the wall uh, at their house where you got this. Each, each, uh, every six months is how we do it, I think. And uh, they, they stand in front of this board and measure how they're uh, moving and progressing. And you see Chase is at 11 years old and pretty good-sized jump each, each time, four and a half to five. Like, that was a big one. Here's there's some, some movement forward. Uh, the girls in pink are progressing nicely, all shooting for the gold medal of mom. Uh, and... Uh, and, and, and so, and, and so <laughs> that's right. Uh, but here, here's the, the picture that I have. If my kids ever stood in front of this, and there's really not an experience, maybe between six, oh, that's six and a quarter. But if they ever stood in front of this and there's no movement forward, they'd be like, what's happening here? Like, what, what's broke? Like, I, I, I didn't eat my broccoli. Maybe mom was right. You know, like, uh, th- this is the expectation that you're not, the same person that you used to be. My hope and my prayer is for each one of us, we're not like, you know what, I got to four and a half years and I'm done. I've kind of arrived, I'm there. Like, no, for us as a Christ follower, there's Christ-likeness taking on these characteristics of him. If you look back and there's no change in you, man, that's, that's concerning. It's concerning for him even as he's writing this letter to the church. He encourages them with that progress forward. But you will notice in the life of a believer, if progress forward means transformation of becoming more like him, then if that's the end goal, what's the best way to transform is for people to confront you with stuff that you don't see or know about yourself. And that's what Jesus does. Verse uh, 20, it says this, But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to I- idols. So you get the, the picture here. They're doing a lot right, but the one thing they're doing where they're really dropping the ball is they're tolerating this woman who's teaching false doctrine. They're tolerating. You even see that in the text. Sometimes it's not just our actions, but sometimes it's putting up with the actions of others, especially if someone's teaching you something that, man, isn't in line with God's word. So here he's taking theology and what we believe really seriously. You see that as a reoccurring theme in the book of Revelations, like God gets fired up when truth isn't elevated appropriately. And why is that? The reason that's important is because what we hold to be true directly influences the things that we do. That rhymed, sorry. But uh, what we hold to be true influences what we do. And that, that picture there is we kind of are a product of what we believe. And he understands that. You're tolerating this woman that's telling you it's okay to participate in these festivals, the, the, these, these feasts, if you will, where sexual immorality and idol worship runs rampant. He's saying, you can't, he's saying you can't do that. Probably not her real name when he refers to her, her as Jezebel. Be kind of like still today if we name somebody Jezebel. Yeah, probably not picking that for a daughter, but really what Jezebel was representing was the, the wife of Ahab, Ahab back in the Old Testament. Do you remember her? Found in 1 Kings, the story of her. Married in, but then did a ton of damage to Israel, moving them subtly towards idol worship. And you remember the account 
of Elijah confronting Israel in their sin. They had wandered to these pagan gods, confronts them, the big showdown. Uh, do, you, do you remember this, this story? The big showdown, and he says, hey, today you're going to choose who, today whom you're going to serve. And he has this contest of who, which God's going to light this altar on fi- fire. Awesome show and display of God's power. But the part of that story I always remember is afterwards, after this massive display of God's power, What do we see Elijah do? We see him like cower and run in fear because it says that he was afraid of Jezebel was out to chase him. Like, I mean, that that tells you that this is some like crazy, creepy woman. Like this is this is a serious, like like scary uh, woman. Yeah. So you see that. So what they're doing is they're tolerating with with her teaching or tolerating it. And you think about that, how that works it only takes one person of significant influence in your life speaking mistruth to really derail the whole thing, doesn't it? Like you see that all the time. I, you think of like just one little vine sneaking in can just wreck the life of a follower of Jesus Christ. My wife and I, when we were moving out here about three and a half years ago, we're really excited. We go and we're walking through the townhome that we're renting in the backyard. It had two lemon trees. We were really jazzed about this because in the barren wasteland of Chicago, there's nothing like that. So we're, we're moving here. We see these, these lemon trees. We're like, yes, we're going we're, we're gonna to do everything with lemons. Like, this is going to be fantastic. I, I, don't, I don't really know other than lemonade what you do. Uh, but, uh, but we were excited about these lemon trees. Well, about when we, when we arrived... Lemon trees are full of lemons. Like, bro, this is, this is great. We show up and like six months into it, we're like, man, where did all the lemons go? Stop producing. I'm like, this is false advertising. It was those elders. And, uh, and so, uh, so, so they, we get there and six months in, eight months in, still no lemons. A year, and I'm trying to be patient. Maybe they have seasons or whatever. And uh, it's still, and finally somebody suggested, I wonder if you have some kind of a, a vine that's in there that's strangling it out, that's keeping it. I was like, oh, I'm going to take this thing. So I get home. I'm, get, I'm, I'm down on all fours underneath this thing. Sure enough, like right at the base, perfectly alongside of us, this vine had grown up literally with thorns. It was like the perfect picture. It had grown up and was strangling this thing out. I take that sucker out like three months later. Lemons everywhere. I'm like, man, it was perfect. It was the perfect illustration that I think God gave me right for this passage because that was Jezebel in my lemon tree. Like that was the, 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 the picture there, the picture there uh, of just smothering it out. And that's what he's saying. Man, Jezebel was te- teaching that it's okay to kind of participate in both worlds. You get worlds. You can come to church on Sunday and kind of do the worldly feast thing the rest of the week. And isn't that so similar today. Look at even the appeal that they make. You know, Satan's uh, temptation hasn't changed a lot. What? What is it? Sexual immorality in the worship of other gods. Is that still the same appeal today? Maybe, maybe not literally bowing to a, a, a false god, but the sexual thing, man, it's, it sneaks into our homes and it needs to be brought to the surface, brought to the light. Because why? Because it's a life-threatening thorn. I was reading a statistic this last week that one in four internet searches is for pornography present day. 25% of the searches breaking into our homes, wrecking marriages. Really, the, the, the means is screens in our households. The reminder that we have to have here is that the, that the road 
of sexual temptation always leads to the same spot, which is destruction, consequence. You see, it's the same exact. It doesn't matter how often you get on that road. It's always going to lead to the same spot. It's always going to have the exact same outcome. I, I drive, we end up doing a, a decent amount of airport runs, different things where we have to go in the city. I don't know if anybody has the 101 commute inbound every day. Well, this is without fail. 101 meets the 405 means what? Traffic, chaos, mayhem like it's every single time it doesn't matter if you're driving at 10 o'clock at night doesn't matter if it's two in the afternoon regardless you can't beat this this juncture like it it always leads to the exact same thing anybody have that drive every day that you make and and see that on a regular basis you see the same you take the same road it's going to lead to the exact same thing and that's what she's uh, that's what he's pointing to with this jezebel character we're not going to beat the odds. Verse 21, we see that if we don't respond to this, judgment is looming. It says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart I will give to each of you according to your works. Pretty powerful section there. Pretty intense words that he's using. Sometimes, the, as we've mentioned, the flannel graph Jesus doesn't really fit the real one that's seen in Scripture. Pretty intense. Look at what he says. I gave her time to repent. I think that's pretty powerful words there. Some of us don't realize that we're in that season with looming judgment that he's saying, I'm giving you a chance. I'm giving you the gift of time to get this right, but if not, here's the thing that I think Christians confuse, is just because we're washed in the blood of Christ doesn't mean that he doesn't still discipline his kids. Doesn't mean that there's still not things from our actions that can get him pretty fired up based on this text. Do you see that there? So here, like Ben not jumping off the cliff last time, he would not re- she would not repent. He caut- cautions to all kinds of stuff coming, great tri- tribulation. Kind of just looking at that, the picture there is a vice squeezing and crushing something. Children, not sure if it's literal here or just her followers, risk of death unless they re- repent, sickbed mention, all of these things is serious business. So then... For us, the takeaway is we get so hesitant to confront people, but really isn't confronting somebody if, if literally judgment is looming, isn't that sometimes the kindest thing you could do for them? Isn't that sometimes the best thing you could do is be like, man, I'm seeing this going on in your life and man, it breaks my heart and I know that God sees it too, like he takes it seriously. If the end goal is, is transformation like we should when when someone gives us some feedback we should be like yeah you're right i i didn't even notice that i who knows i don't even know if this church realized the the slippery slope they were heading down with this woman's teaching i love this passage it points to the this this picture here hebrews 12:11 says for the moment for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant but later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. Isn't that a great verse? 
That's the, the picture that he has for us as his followers saying, listen, it's for your best interest. It's for your best interest. Sometimes we see this passage and you see, read those verses, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give, give to each of you according to your works. Sometimes when you hear the fact that he sees everything and knows everything, that can be a scary thought. But if you think about it, it's actually a good thing that he sees the stuff that needs to be taken out. Otherwise, man, we can be, a, if no one's calling us out on our junk, that's a problem if transformation is the end goal. Nobody's calling us out. That's a problem if transformation is the end goal. And so I was this last week, there's a little illustration that paints the picture. I, we have a dog. Her name's Bailey. She's a cockapoo. Here's a, a picture of, of cute little Bailey. Uh, we we uh, adopted her and really has been a wonderful dog. And so, but the thing that bothers me about Bailey is Bailey has hair rather than fur, which means that every couple months you got to drop $50, $60, $70 for getting that stupid dog's haircut. Anybody else have one of these at home? And the cheapskate side of me is kind of like, like, man, I don't know if I want to spend $60 on that. So listen to what I did. Don't show the picture yet. So, so, so I said, you know what? I can get my own clippers from Target and I can take care of this. Well, I start this process, and those things are terrible. These oyster things, you're like, what? This, it's got these guards on it. It won't even go even a little bit through our fur. So eventually, I'm like, forget it. I'm just shaving her down. I'm like an hour and a half into this. I started at like 6 o'clock. I'm in my backyard. It's getting dark out. I can't, I'm, just, I'm just cutting at this point. I can't see. Can't see. No guard. No regard. Like, no re- and, and, and so the next morning, I look, and there's tufts of fur. Like, I mean, like, it was bad. So here's Bailey after her cut. <laughs> this poor dog, man. She, she got... Tell, tell me I'm not right. She looks mad about it, doesn't she? She's bitter. She, she's angry about the whole thing. And, and, and so poor, poor Bailey, like we, we've told Bailey, like no walks for a couple of weeks till things grow out a little bit. And, uh, but but here, here's the thing. It's like, wouldn't you, now help me with this stretch of a parallel here. Uh, wouldn't you rather have somebody that knows what they're doing, somebody that can actually see what they're doing, like at, at work here. Like, and so for us, when we hear this, you're just like, whoa, sounds like God's scary. Like, no, this is a good thing, the fact that he sees and knows and has a plan for our transformation. We're not sneaking anything past him. He's the one that calls us out on our junk. And here's the thing, though. Sometimes through him, it's through discipline. It's a lot better if we as brothers and sisters in Christ can have actually help in this process. When we can say to each other, hey, I noticed this, like we need somebody in our life that can speak some truth into it. Amen? We need somebody to call us out on our junk. We need some spiritual accountability. That's what God designed with the church. But my question for us this morning is do we even allow that to happen? Do we allow the degree of, of intimacy? Do we al- allow the degree of connectedness where people can actually see and then actually speak to issues in our life? Do you have anybody doing that 
in your life. I'm afraid too often as adults that's not happening for us. Anybody's saying to us some of the, the tough words, you don't have grounds for divorce. You can't live with her before marriage. You can't drink that much socially. You can't speak to your wife like that. We have anybody speaking those kinds of statements that are, are saying, listen, and th- this is no good. This, is, this needs to be addressed. This needs to be confronted. Who's doing that in our lives? If there's not somebody, we see here, God will get involved in the process. Many of us play the don't judge me card, which really means don't correct me. God wants us to correct each other, to challenge each other, to push each other like iron sharpens iron. We don't want to be the person like Jezebel that refuses to repent. Verse 24, for those that get this right, it says, but the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, you, uh, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. Love this picture there. So often we make Christianity so complicated and all these things to, that we have to do and ground that we have to take. And what is he saying? I'm not laying more on you. I know that you're in a, in a situation where you're com- constantly bombarded with temptation to sin. All I'm asking you to do is just hold on till I get there. Just wait it out. Stay, stay the course. That's the encouragement. He says, listen, I'm not trying to make this a heavy weight on you. I'm just saying stay the course. Keep being faithful. You might be aware of these things, these deeper things of Satan, but you haven't adopted them for yourself. Stay with that. Stay with that till I return. And we don't know if he's referring to till I come and judge these people that aren't or if he's referring to his ultimate coming with the rapture. Either way, the challenge is to remain pure, to keep on holding firm Explains lastly in verse 26 the benefits that come when we do. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." Big idea here, and we'll close with this, is that moral vigilance will be rewarded. Moral vigilance will be rewarded. When we do make that choice to say, I'm, I'm just not partaking, I'm not, I'm not going that route, I'm staying the course, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing right through it for the lie that it is. If we stay the course, he gives two different promises. One is he promises that we're going to rule and reign with him which our minds can't even grasp exactly what that means. Like some, some of you hear that and you're like, nice, there's a lot of people I'd like to reign and rule over right now. He's, he's not really painting that, that picture there. The rule word is actually this, similar for the word of, of a shepherd, so it's more of a caring component. So, uh, and that iron rod is more of a staff that's for nurturing and developing. So, so don't get too excited about the iron rod there. But the, the picture here. We don't know exactly, we see through a glass dimly now, but even the idea that we're going to reign and rule with Jesus Christ as his followers, that's pretty awesome. We don't know if he's talking about the, some debate, whether that's in the thousand-year millennium or whether that's for an eternity in new heaven and new earth. E- either way, I'm okay with either one. It's pretty cool to picture 
me on the list of one of the people reigning and ruling with Jesus Christ. Then he promises one other thing there, which is pretty powerful. He kind of just sneaks it in in verse 28. He says, And I will give him the morning star. And I will give him the morning star. We've been accumulating in this series a pretty good list of all the things that are given to those who endure. A lot of things have been presented. It would be fun to actually recap those at some point. But here he adds, hey, one more thing. And guess what the morning star is? We see it in Revelations 22, 16. Jesus tells us, I am the morning star. I am the morning star. So basically he's saying, hey, out of all this, you get to reign and rule. But the biggest thing, the coolest thing that you actually get out of this deal is you get me. You get me is what Jesus says. I'm at the end of the tunnel. I'm at the, and right now, though you see through a glass dimly, at some point you're going to see him face to face and you're going to be like, whoa, this exceeded every expectation. This made it all worth it. Some years back, my wife and I were on a trip, uh, anniversary trip to Hawaii, and we were in, uh, did that, that, uh, Haleakala, I think I'm saying that right, the top of the, the crater up there. I don't know if anybody's been up there before, but they do this sunrise trip that you go up, and they pick you up. You have to meet at this place at like 3.30 in the morning, and I remember I was kind of cranky on that morning. I'm like, this, this, this better be cool because I'm on vacation, and 3.30 and vacation don't usually align. And, uh, and, and so I'm getting there. We're getting in the, in the, the vans, and it's literally, we're putting on coats because it's like freezing cold, and you're like, man, this is, this is miserable. You get to the top of this deal, and the, this picture was a lot more shoddy than, uh, than it was supposed to turn out. But you, you're standing out. You look at the, the, uh, the, the sun just start to peak up. Because really, what is a, a morning star? That's the way I picture a morning star. This is, it starts to peak up. And all your expectations, this doesn't do it justice. If, you, if you've done this before, I mean, it's one of those like spiritual experiences that you're like, whoa, we have a creator and he does some cool stuff. We have an awesome God. And I have this idea that at some point we read, a, we read verses like that and you're like, yeah, we get the morning star. But at some point, we're going to get up all the, the cold, all the misery, the early morning, like all that's done. And you're going to see the morning star and you're going to say, whoa, it's worth it. It's worth it all. The, the, the resistance, the saying no to stuff, the putting up with ridicule, the, hey, wh- why aren't you going this direction? All that stuff, you're going to say, oh, I'm so glad I waited for the morning star. I want to give us just a couple of minutes here, and actually the gift of time, just 60 seconds, to ask the question. He, he ends with, with this. He says, he who has an ear Let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And my question to you this morning is, what is the Spirit saying to you? What is He saying to you in this text? Is He saying, hey, hey, listen, you need to address some of these things. You need to address some of the sexual immorality. You need to address some of this idol worship that snuck into your life. You need to address those before I do. Maybe that's what He's saying. Or he might be saying, man, there's somebody in your life that, that needs a nudge, that needs somebody to call them out and, and do that. We're told to make sure that we, that we correct in love and grace, make sure we get that piece right. I'm going to give you just 60 seconds just to listen to the Lord. Just ask him, God, what are you saying to me? What do you, what do you want me to do with this message this morning? I'm going to be quiet and then come back up to pray in a minute.
God, we thank you so much that you are jealous for your bride. That you're not content leaving us where we're at. That you understand that progression forward sometimes takes some weeding out of stuff in our lives. We thank you for your patience, for your grace to us in that. We'd ask that you'd look deep into each one of us, call us out on our stuff, that we'd position ourselves in relationships with people that can help in this process. Thank, that, thank you that you're long-suffering. God, I just thank you that you're actively involved and concerned with our growth. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would do a work in each one of us, that this message wouldn't be just for the church there, but for us here this morning. Praise you this morning in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.